Hey everyone, this is Nick Mesmer, co-host of the Biblical Languages podcast. In this episode, we're diving back into our series on word order in the biblical languages. We've taken several weeks off in the middle of this series, but we should be back on our weekly episode rhythm for a while. After this episode, we'll have two more episodes in this series on word order. Then we'll kick off an exciting new series looking at key Greek terms in Paul's letters. We have a pretty amazing lineup of guests who will be digging into some really important topics, so stay tuned for more information on that series. I also wanted to mention that Biblingo is offering live online beginner Greek and Hebrew courses starting the week of September 5th. These are eight-week courses that use Biblingo's interactive approach aimed primarily at developing reading fluency with the languages. Registration is open, and early registration pricing of $240 is available through August 17th. You can learn more and register at biblingo.org live. Now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I'm Kevin Grosso, and this is our second episode on Greek word order in the New Testament. In this episode, we will be focusing on word order in sentences with a topic or focus, as well as word order in questions. This corresponds to chapters 4 and 5 in Kirk's dissertation on New Testament word order, which, as I said in the previous episode, is the best treatment of word order in the New Testament that I know of. There are two reasons why we are doing one more episode on her work other than just the quality of her discussion. First, while I would highly encourage anyone who is seriously interested in the subject to read through her work themselves, I also recognize that formal syntax can be very difficult to understand without a background in linguistics. So I hope these episodes can provide an accessible distillation of some of the important ideas found in her work. Second, while topic and focus are categories that are appealed to in literature on word order in the Greek New Testament, the definitions given to these categories often remains quite general. Kirk's analysis allows us to differentiate between different kinds of topics and foci, and this better accounts for the data. So last time, we said that either VSO or SVO can be pragmatically neutral orders in New Testament Greek. If you haven't listened to our previous episode on basic order, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first, because we will be assuming her analysis to be correct based on what we discussed in the previous episode. So now let's dive into what we're actually going to be talking about in this episode. So first, we're going to go over some principles of how to determine constituent order. So I'm hoping this will give people who don't have as much of a background in formal syntax, an idea of what it is we're doing, right? When we're trying to figure out where a certain morpheme is located in the syntax, how do we go about doing that? So we'll talk about some principles to help us determine constituent order. And then we will talk about the location of topic and focus. So we will go through topic first and then focus. We'll go through different kinds of topics, where they are found in the syntax, whether they're found in the same place or different place. And the same thing with focus, right? Are there different kinds of focus? Um, 
where are those found in the syntax? Different place, same place, etc. And then we'll do the same thing for the location of question words. So first we'll focus on yes, no questions. So we'll go through examples of yes, no questions, um, some with a question particle, some without. And then we will go through what are called WH questions. So these correspond to WH words in English, why, what, um, who, et cetera, et cetera. And so these, this is actually the term used in linguistics for these kinds of words, even though, of course, many languages have the same kinds of words that don't start in WH. But they're called WH questions or um, WH words. And so we're, we'll go over the location of WH words in Greek, and then we will draw some conclusions. To begin with, let's talk about how do we go about determining the order of a constituent in a sentence. One thing to note is that some words have different possible orders, okay? And there are other words that are only found in one order. So, for example, we can look at the word often. So, I can say a sentence like, I play the violin often, which is totally fine. If I then say, I play the often violin, no one would understand what you mean. That is a sentence that would really never be uttered in English. I play often the violin is also pretty bad. I often play the violin is totally fine. Then often I play the violin is okay, but not so great. So here we have this word often, right? And it has two main positions. It can either go right after the subject, I often play the violin, or you, you could also describe that as right before the verb, um, or it could go right after the direct object in I play the violin often, okay? So the question is, for this, for this word, right, does it have a syntactic slot? Well, it seems like it does in the sense that you can't put it anywhere. You can't say I play the often violin. It just doesn't work in English or I play often the violin. So the issue is that that we do have slots, right, available for this word often. And whatever its semantics is, though, allows it to actually be put at the end or right before the verb. So that is, you know, a unique thing about often. So our analysis of often would have to allow it to be used in those two slots and disallowed in other slots. There are other kinds of words that are only allowed in one slot. So this, these are words like, um, or like a prepositional phrase, right? So like the word in. So if you take, you know, the phrase in the room, you're never going to find it with the room in, right? Or the in room, or in room the, room the in, or room in the. So those are all the options, right? And we only ever find it in one place. So what this suggests is that there is actually a place in the syntax, right, for the word in, right, in relation to the the noun phrase or determinative phrase that follows it. So you, you, you have always, right, in English, preposition first, and then the determiner if it's there, and then the noun, right? You always have in the room. So that might not be true in other languages. You might not have that same order. But the point is that we have consistency in the order of the constituents, at least in these kinds of phrases. So then the idea here, if we just extrapolate from this, could there be slots for things like topic and focus, right? If there's a slot 
for a preposition? Could there also be a slot for topic and focus? And this is what people, um, or what has led people to say yes, right? If if there is a slot for a prepositional phrase, why not a slot for topic and focus, right? And the idea is that in languages, um, in many languages, we do see movement for topic and focus. We see it consistently to the left or higher up. So um, when I talk about to the left or higher up, it, I'm thinking of a syntactic tree. So to the left is is closer to the beginning of the clause and higher up is is also closer to the beginning. It's the same thing. Um, it's just you, you build trees from bottom up and from right to left. So those are those are the same thing. So the idea here is that there are going to be some um, m- you know more abstract categories that will have syntactic slots. That's that's the idea. And this is going to correspond to a certain semantic interpretation. And so this is why we see in language after language, topic and focus are to the left. They're higher up. They're before the verb, before the normal slot for the subject. And and so th- it's not surprising, right, that, um, for example, in Italian, you will move topics to the left. And the same thing for Greek, same thing for English. In language after language, we see to the left, right, to the beginning of the clause, we're going to have... Uh, a, a slot for a topic, okay? And so we we have different interpretations of some words based on where they are found in the sentence. So I'll give you give an example of this. So you can say something like, truly, she answered the question. So this, this sentence is actually ambiguous. It could be that she answered the question and, and her answer was true. Or it could be that it is true that she answered the question. We can also say she answered the question truly. And this sentence is, is not ambiguous. It it has to mean that her answer to the question was true. Okay, so here we have truly occupying two different syntactic slots and behaving differently semantically. So the idea here is that there is a slot for an adverb like this. And one slot is lower in the clause, past the verb. And then another slot is before everything. Truly, she answered the question. And when you move the same word truly, you will get different interpretations for, for these clauses, right? And the the word truly actually will not work for some kinds of verbs because it will be interpreted in the wrong way further down the clause. So for example, I can say truly she ran a marathon, which only has the interpretation again of it is true that she ran a marathon. Or, um, you know, we can think, okay, can we also put truly down um, past the verb, right? She ran a marathon truly is is really bad. Like we would never say that. Okay. So so the idea here is that when we when we talk about topic and focus, we are moving constituents to certain places in the syntax and those places have semantic meaning or they might have semantic meaning, right? So the question is what kinds of meanings might they have? And so we actually see this in English with with questions. So yes, no questions require verb movement in English. Did she run a marathon? We see the word did move or you know appear before the verb. I mean, before the subject, did is is the the verb, 
So that appears before the subject, and then we have she run a marathon. So here, we actually um, see that did is in a spot that is, um, it doesn't have to be there, right? It is, it is higher up in the clause. So we can say something like, she did run a marathon, right? In which case, it means something different. Um, that's, you know, putting focus on, on the verb. And in that case, right, we have a different semantics. And we have a different order. So wherever we put, you know, focus in uh, English, we need to, or this kind of focus, this do support focus, she did run a marathon, that is going to have a different order. It's going to have a different syntactic slot than did she run a marathon in a yes-no question. So, and we see in English, again, that we do have a topic slot. Uh, so we can say something like, about Liana, she did run a marathon. About Liana is a topic phrase in English. So we have that topic first, and then we resume with the pronoun, she did run a marathon, in which case, again, we see that the topic is to the left or higher up to the beginning of the clause. So how then do we determine the order of these constituents? So we, so we have seen that topics in English can be to the beginning of the clause, and we've also seen that yes-no questions can move the verb to the beginning of the clause. So which one comes first, right? So this is a very important part of how we determine uh, constituent order, right? Is we say, okay, well, let's put those two elements together and see which one should come first. So we can say, for example, about Liana, did she run a marathon? So this sentence shows us that there's a, there is a topic phrase about Liana, and then there's also did she run a marathon? This yes, no question. So this sentence shows us that the topic phrase comes before yes, no questions. So in our previous examples, we didn't know this to be the case, right? We just said, okay, in both cases, we see some sort of movement to the left, to the beginning. But now with this example, we see, okay, there is actually an, an order to topic and questions in English. Topics come before questions. So the verb is going to move um, in a in a yes no question to the front of the clause, but that front of the clause is actually after where the topic would be, and you can't say it the other way. So this is what's important. You can't say did about Liana she run a marathon, right? That's terrible. No one would ever say that. So the point here is that when we look at the relative position of constituents to each other, we can start to figure out which one comes before another one, and then we can say okay. If there is a certain constituent that we don't really know the semantics of, we can say, well, it can't be interpreted in one way because, um, you know, for example, if, if topics come before um, foci and we have a focus and then we have another constituent, then we can't interpret that other constituent as a topic, right? Because it's just not in the, in the right slot. So this will make more sense as we, as we go along um, when we actually like get into the you know the data and see how different constituents are related to each other but the point here is that this allows us when we have multiple elements in the same sentence marked for something it allows us to see the order of those elements so some elements also will not allow the other element to be present so they will occupy the same slot so this 
um, for example, it's true of complementizers and WH words in English. So we can say, he said that Liana ran a marathon. So here we have complementizer that he said that Liana ran a marathon. And then we have a, a very similar sentence, like he questioned what Liana ran. Um, and so in this case, the what seems to be occupying a very similar slot to that in in um, the first sentence, right? He said that Liana ran a marathon. He questioned what Liana ran. And so the question is, can we put both of those elements in the same sentence? So can we say he questioned that what Liana ran? No, it's terrible, right? We, we would never say that. Or he questioned what that Liana ran. Also terrible. So you can't put a WH word in an indirect question and a complementizer in the same sentence. So what does this tell us? It, it seems to suggest that these two elements occupy the same slot in the syntax or for whatever reason, they are mutually exclusive. So we will see that this will help us to determine, again, the relative position of elements in the in a clause because if we never see two two words co-occurring right it might suggest that they actually do occupy the same slot let's let's talk about now topic so how do we determine the location of topic and focus so first of all kirk talks about different kinds of topics so this is a very important point because again many people are not fine-grained enough when it comes to topic and focus. They throw out topic and focus, you know, topic as old information or known information and focus as new information, which is a decent generalization, but it doesn't account for all the data. It particularly doesn't not account for um, you know, why things are moving to certain locations in the sentence. So we're going to talk about four different kinds of topics. Um, the four we're going to discuss our aboutness topic, contrastive topic, shifting topic, and familiar topic. So first, aboutness topic. So this is what we've seen already in English, this sort of about phrase, right? About Liana, did she run a marathon? And so this kind of topic is a little bit different, and we're not really going to touch on it much. It introduces what the sentence is about and is not moved, right? It's, and it's accompanied by a preposition. So so an example of this is found in Acts 28, 22. So I'm going to read the Greek and then I'm also going to just read um, Kirk's translation of these because these are all her examples for um, you know all these different kinds of topics and foci throughout the, the talk. So here she says, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So the concerning this sect is the peri tes haresios tautes. So that is the aboutness topic, right? That is first in the sentence, peri, and then you obviously have the um, postposes men and gar, but, but you have first is the peri. And so this is the very beginning of the clause. It's before the main clause. And then the, the main clause resumes the 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 topic, this aboutness topic, usually with some sort of like pronominal element, okay? So that's the basic idea in this kind of topic. Um, but again, we're not gonna be talking about this this very much. 
because the idea here is that it's it's not really moved. Um, it's accompanied by a preposition, and we're not going to see movement of the subject or object, for example, to a place higher up in the clause. It's just introduced by the preposition to tell us what the sentence is about. So next, so this is is contrastive topic. So this is actually where movement might take place for the sake of a contrastive topic. So this the this is how Kirk defines it. She says, contrastive topic further specifies the referent of a salient item in the discourse. So it further specifies the referent of a salient item in the discourse. So it contrasts two things, right? Um, and so 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 it it's not, it doesn't just contrast two things. The item has to to be salient, and that salient item is contrasted with something else to describe it in a new way. Okay, so her example of this is Luke sixteen thirteen, in Greek first, udes oiketes dunitai du sin kurios du lewin. So it says, no house servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one. So this is egartonhena, right? Misese. So here we have tonhena misese before the verb, right? The, the tonhena is before the verb, right? which is not the normal order. So either he will hate one and love the other. So here we also have before the verb. So here we have two um, contrasting things, right? One and the other. Both appear before the verb, even though they're objects, which is not normal in New Testament Greek. And they're salient in the discourse. We've already said that you can't serve two masters. And this, these are the two masters that we're talking about okay so so there, it's not new information it's it's still a topic in that sense but it's contrastive and it shows up in an order that seems to be before the verb um higher up in the clause so now we move to shifting topic so shifting topic is defined as a newly introduced newly changed or newly returned to topic kirk's example of this is luke ten forty. He de Martha peri espato peri polen diaconian. Okay, so here we have he de Martha, and the idea is that this, in the context, is a topic that is newly returned to. So this is when Mary and Martha were both with Jesus, and Martha was busy serving. Um, and this is actually I'll read the translation, but Martha Martha was busy with much serving. So, so Martha has already been introduced and Mary has been introduced. It was just talking about Mary, the context. And now we switch back to Martha. So Martha was, was busy with much serving. And so we see this also accompanied by the de. So Kirk mentions this as uh, uh, an interesting point. People have said that de is associated with this whole topic position. She says that it is sometimes... Um, correlates with a shift in topic or a shifting topic, uh, but not always. So de can introduce a, a new topic or reintroduce an old topic, but it doesn't always do that. So that's an important point. We will often see de co-occurring with this shifting topic, 
but it doesn't mean that when we have de, we have a shifting topic. Okay, so then our last topic is a familiar topic. So this is given or accessible from the discourse. This is how she defines it. And her example is Luke 10, 18. It says, Tauten ten entolen elabon para tu patrosmu. So this commandment I took from my father. So this commandment, tauten ten entolen, is before the verb, elabon. So again, that's not the normal order of the, you know, verb object. And so it's before the verb. And the question is, why is it before the verb? And the idea is that in Luke 10, 18, this, the, the commandment, tauten ten entolen, it was just being talked about, right? It's referred to by the demonstrative. And it, it is, so it's given or accessible from the discourse. And we are referring to it in, in this position, right? In the first position, right? Before the verb, rather than after the verb. Okay, so the question is, do all of these topics have a place in the syntax? And if so, where are they? So this is not a, an easy question, right? So first of all, we have to find we have to find places where we seem to have both a shifting topic and a familiar topic. So what the the, the context that she really stresses is SOV. So we will see some of these sentences um, throughout. But the reason why SOV is an important order for her is because the assumption is that the the object usually goes after the verb, which is true. Um, and so if you have the object before the verb, it has moved. And if if the object has moved, then we would expect it to move either so 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 the idea is that it would it would have to move in an, in an SVO sentence. It would have to move before the subject. So we would have the order OSV. In a VSO sentence, it would have to move before the verb. So we'd have OVS. So when we have SOV, the idea is that both subject and object have moved. So then we can see, okay, if that's the case, if two items have moved, then we can start to see which item is a shifting topic or familiar topic or a focus, et cetera, et cetera, and where they are in relation to each other, right? So that's the idea. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to figure out okay, if we have this category for a shifting topic and a familiar topic, for example, let's try to find a sentence where both are present and see which one comes first. So her example of this is Galatians 3.18. She says, To de Abraham di evangelias que charistai hoteos. But to Abraham, God granted it by, and I, I think this is should be by promise. Um, so, so, but to Abraham, God granted it by promise. So her claim about this sentence is that tod de Abraham is a shifting topic. So it was introduced previously. Now we're going back to it. And again, it's accompanied by de. So that is more evidence for that. And then de Epangelias is a familiar topic, right? So it, it is retrievable from the discourse but it's not shifting in any way. And then we have, um, you know, the verb followed by the, the subject. So the idea here is that there are two elements before the verb and the subject. So both of these 
elements have to be in positions that are related to topic or focus, right? There's there's some sort of reason why they are before the verb and the subject. And so what she says is, is that this shows that the shifting topic comes before the familiar topic because the shifting topic is to de Abraham first in the clause and the familiar topic is di Epangelias and that is second in the clause. So then she says, okay, well, what about contrastive topic? And her example for contrastive topic is similar, right? Where she says the contrastive topic is found before the familiar topic. So her example is Luke 10, 42. Mariam ga ten agathen merida exlexato. So here we have the S-O-V that I mentioned earlier. The, the She translates this, the sentence, and Maria chose the good part. So the, the, the reason why we have S-O-V, just to, to say this one more time, is the object has moved right so so the object is normally after the verb here we see it before the verb and so we have to conclude that um, the subject has also moved because it's before the moved object and so if if a constituent is going to or, to move for topic or focus it, it would move past both the subject and the verb but because we have the subject here before the verb as well, this SOV order tells us that we have two moved constituents. So Mariam, right, Maria, she says is a contrastive topic. And so it is um, contrasting, again, Luke 10, uh, 42, the same sort of context we mentioned earlier, Mary and Martha. Mary is, is contrasted with Martha. And then the familiar topic is ten agathen merida, the the good portion. She translates the good part. So so here we have again more evidence that familiar topic is coming second, um, and contrastive topic is coming first. So what she says is that there's actually no example where we have a shifting topic and a contrastive topic. So. If these categories seem arbitrary to you, she's actually taking them from, uh, you know, theoretical work on topic, but but work that has focused a lot on Italian, where you have um, very clearly multiple constituents that can be topicalized in, and they mean different things. They have different intonational patterns. They have different locations in the syntax. Um, so Italian actually has a shifting topic, contrastive topic, focus, and familiar topic. So you can put you know all those elements at the front of the sentence and it'll have different intonations and you'll have different interpretations for each of those elements so what she says for greek is that there's actually no evidence that we have a shifting topic and a contrastive topic in the same sentence and part of the reason for this is is that they're actually very close in meaning and all all three of these topics right are are very close in meaning and it's very hard to tease apart the difference especially between shifting topic and contrastive topic sometimes so the fact that we wouldn't have, you know, a separate slot for those would make sense, right? That in some languages we might have that, in some languages we wouldn't have that. So she says that really there's just one topic place that ho- that allows for both shifting topic and contrastive topic, and that and that comes before um, 
you know, the familiar topic that is uh, lower in the class. So there's there's two places for these different kinds of topic. One is the shifting topic, contrastive topic, and then another lower in the clause is the familiar topic. Now let's talk about focus and 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 we will come back to you know these relative orders when we talk about focus. And so what what we'll do now is see okay what are the different kinds of focus do we have um, and where are you know those different foci in the clause. So to begin with what are the different kinds of foci that we see? So she gives four. Again, we have new information focus, additive focus, contrastive focus, and contrastive focus under negation. So for new information focus, she defines it as just new information provided, uh, for example, in question answer pairs. So we actually don't have um, a lot of good data on this. And so she, she says she only found one example. I don't know if she's searching within her corpus. Um, which is you know limited to just four books, uh, Matthew, Luke, First Corinthians, and Revelation, um, or she starts the New Testament. She will often give examples of you know um, different orders in the New Testament, or from different places. You know we've seen one from Galatians, for example. But but she says here that um, she only found one example where in a in a wh question the verb is repeated. This is very normal, right, for us to omit the verb. So if I say something like, who hit the ball, we can just say Tim. Um, we don't have to say Tim hit the ball. Um, or what did Tim hit? We would just say the ball. We don't have to say Tim hit the ball, right? So so it's very normal for us to just omit the verb in responses to these WH questions. So, But she did find one example. And in this example, we have the object, the answer to this WH question before the verb. So I'll, I'll just read it. It's from Luke 12, 17 and 18. Tipoyeso, hoti uch echo pu sun axo tus carpusmu. Kai eipen tuto poyeso. So this is how she translates it. What will I do? Because I have nowhere to store my fruit. And he said, this is what I'll do. So the tuto poyeso is is object verb order, and her point is that again that's not the normal order, and so we have movement to the front um, in this new information focus. So this is very very normal. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising. Obviously, you'd want to see more data for this um, kind of thing, and you you would also want to see que a question that isn't to oneself <laughs> um you you'd want to see you know it in dialogue with a different verb rather than poyo uh she actually mentioned that you know with poyo you often have the object before the verb but all that to say the only evidence that we we do have or, you know at least what she says is um th that the the new information focus will come before the verb and, and this is not surprising at all so next we have additive focus. So this presupposes that something else in the context also satisfies the predicate. So um, let me just read you one in, in one of her examples and, and I'll explain more about what this means. So e me edete kaiton patera mu an edete. 
So if you had known me, you would also have known my father. So this also is is the additive focus here. Um, in Greek, this is done with kai. So she talks a lot about this. Obviously, kai can be used just as a conjunction, but it is very clear that it can also be used in this sort of construction. And you know, people have said, oh, it's translated and, and also sometimes also or even. In this case, when it's translated also or even, what people are, you know, implicitly suggesting is that it is one of this this additive focus particle. So kaiton patera mu an edete. So the idea is that we have this kaiton patera mu, um, and it is before the verb. So again, that's not the normal order, and it has this focus particle kai, and we have the the inverted order. So that suggests that the focus position, right, for this additive focus um, is before the verb, or at least, you know, it can be. So that this is um, an additive focus pre-verbal example, but she also has an additive focus post-verbal. So this is her example. It's strepson auto kaiten allen. Um, turn the other to him too. So I, I'm not really sure if this, I mean, I'm assuming that this is not her only example. This is not the best example because um, strepson is an imperative. And we know that imperatives will sometimes move higher up in the clause. Um, so it could, in theory, move past, you know, focus if it moves to a place, you know, an identical place, for example, to a, a question word in English, um, like particularly C. So we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, T to C movement. Um, for those of you that understand that, that, that would bring the verb past the focus position, potentially. Um, I mean, it would according to her analysis. And so this isn't really the best example. I, I'm assuming that she has other examples um, of this additive focus post-verbal. We will see that you you do often have the, these different kinds of foci, post-verbal and pre-verbal. So it seems like there is this sort of optional movement with focus in Greek. You, you can just put focus on something by adding, you know, chi or this contrastive uh, construction that we'll talk about in a second. But there is also a, a slot for it that comes before the verb. So what we want to see then is the co-occurrence of those things. So we, we don't want to say that every time you have focus, you have, you know, this order, right? What we want to say is that if you have an element that is... Um, seems to be higher up in the clause and it has this focus particle of some kind or focus construction, then it seems to be in a focus position. That's the idea. So next we have contrastive focus. So again, she has two examples, one pre-verbal and one post-verbal. Um, so contrastive focus is evaluated within a set of alternatives that possibly satisfy the denotation of the predicate. So, um, her example, Eleos thelo kai uthusian. I want mercy and not sacrifice. So here, it's, it is mercy that, that Jesus wants, right? Eleos. Um, and that is placed before the verb. Eleos thelo kai uthusian. And so, there's this contrast 
with Elios, mercy, and Thucian, sacrifice, and the the contrastive element is negated. So this is kind of this uh, the way these constructions work. And so we have um, a pre-verbal, right, object, meaning that the this uh, element has moved. And But we also have some post-verbal. So this is contrastive focus, post-verbal, and this is from Galatians 2.16. Hina dikaiothomen ek piseos Christu ke uk ex ergon nomu. So, you know, those of you that know my work, you know how I would, how I would translate ek piseos Christu. But the 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 point here is that hina um, dikaiothomen is is our verb, right? Dikaiothomen, and then we have ek piseos Christu. And it seems to be in this contrastive focus with kai uk ex ergon nomu because then you have the an alternative negated, right? So we have the same focus construction like in Matthew nine thirteen, eleos kai uthusian. I want mercy and not sacrifice. So the same kind of thing. Um, we're justified by the Christ faith and not works of Torah. The same sort of contrastive focus. But the ekpiseos Christu comes after the verb rather than before. And finally, we have contrastive focus under negation, not X but Y construction. So the difference here, it's very similar to what we just saw with contrastive focus. Um, the difference here is that the focused element is negated rather than another element being negated. So we have um, her example of this in Matthew 9.13. Kaihos an eme dechetai, uk eme dechetai, ala ton apostelantame. So, and whoever should receive me will not receive me, but the one who sent me. So, the idea here is that the focus is on uk eme dechetai, uk eme. Um, and then the contrast is with, but the one who sent me. And we see that the negation goes with eme and both precede the verb. And then we also have contrastive focus without negation. So this example too, I, I was a little bit puzzled by and I, again, I don't know if she has a better example of this, um, but she said, this is her example. Ugar elthon kalesai dikaius al hamartolus. So for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So the reason why I don't think this is the best example is it's it could be interpreted the way she says it, right? The way she translates it. For I came not to call the righteous. So I have come, but I'm not doing it to call the righteous people, but I'm doing it to, or I've come to call the sinners. Um, the problem is that you do have ooh here in the, the front of the clause before the verb, Um and so it's 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 hard to tell if if it should not just be understood like for I did not come to call the righteous right so my coming was not for this reason but it was but I came to call the sinners um, so it's just a little bit difficult to tell whether you the contrast right I mean, clearly we, you have contrast between dikaius and hamartolus and that that's what leads her to say that we have this contrastive focus with negation, um, you know, 
post verbally. But the the issue is that it's not clear that u really goes with dikaius. Um, that would be um, you know, you would just like to see a better example of that, particularly u in that same slot and where we know it's not um, where we know it's not negating the predicate. So we, we we've talked about four different kinds of focus, right? New information focus, additive focus, contrastive focus, contrastive focus under negation. Um, so now we have these sorts of um, constructions. The question is, where are these in relation to what we talked about before with topics? So does focus have a specific place in the syntax? And if so, where is it? So we have an example of 1 Corinthians 2.12, um, where she says that contrastive or shifting topic comes before contrastive focus. So this is her example. Hemes de utopenelma tu cosmu elabomen, ala topenelma to ectu theu. Now we received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. So this is a good example. We have hemes de, so the de is again, um, correlates with topics, shifting topics. And so, that is the first element in the sentence. Then we have utopneoma to cosmu. So here we have an object with a negation. So the the fact that you have the object before the verb, again, this S-O-V order, suggests that the, the object has moved and then the subject has also moved. And because we have the subject first, we and it seems to be interpreted in context as a shifting topic, um, the shifting topic has to be before focus because the utopneuma to cosmo seems to be in this contrastive focus construction with ala topneuma to ectu theu. So under her analysis, the focused element would not have to have moved in this construction. But the fact that we have this focus construction means that it can move and it, it seems to have moved because it is found before the verb. Right, that's the idea. And it has moved to a place that is lower than shifting topic. So we conclude from that that shifting topic comes before contrastive focus or focus, right? She's going to assume that there's only one focus slot. And this has just been demonstrated in the literature. So we won't get into it. So what we've said before is that shifting topic and contrastive topic are in the same spot. So then that means the focus is after this um, shifting slash contrastive topic. But we also said that familiar topic seems to be after the shifting or contrastive topic. So the question is, right, does focus come before or after the familiar topic? And it seems that, according to her example, familiar topic actually comes after the f- focus slot. So here we have an example from 1 Peter 4.1. It says, So you too be of the same mind. This is how she translates it. I wouldn't really translate um, as the copula, but but is this additive focus, right? Um, so her point is that in, in the context, this is not the conjunction. It is an additive focus, particle that is putting focus on humase 
And then we have ten al ten enoyan, enoyan, um, as the familiar topic. Again, we have S O V. This is you know the um, of the same mind. The fact that we have ten al ten the same right shows that it is familiar right in the discourse. It's not contrasting with anything. Um, it's not shifting anything. So it's not a shifting or contrastive topic. It seems to be a familiar topic. Um, it's found before the verb rather than after, which is not to be expected um, unless it is doing something pragmatic. And so from this, we can conclude that the focus position is before the familiar topic position. So that leads to the following analysis, right? We have in the beginning a topic phrase that, that has either a shifting topic or a contrastive topic. That's followed by a focus phrase. Um, and this focus phrase can can have different kinds of foci appear. But um, in, in either case, or in any case, it seems to present new information that usually contrasts with something. And then we have a familiar topic phrase. So in the familiar topic phrase, we have, um, you know, entities in, that are known in the discourse that are just referred to. And then we have um, our tense phrase, our verb phrase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've seen is that particularly with SOV order, right, where we have both the subject and the object move, we consistently can see this order where if there is a contrastive or shifting topic, it's going to be first. If there is a focus, it will either be after the contrastive or shifting topic or before the familiar topic. And if there's a familiar topic, um, it will come last if two elements have moved, right? So that allows us to derive, you know, all of these orders. Um, so now let's let's go to questions. So let's talk about the location of question words. So again, we're going to do the same kind of thing, right? So we're going to start with the yes, no questions. We're going to say, okay, where do we find yes, no questions in the, in the syntax? Um, do they co-occur with particles? Um, do they, are they marked by something? Do they in, involve movement? So there are some options, you know, for the world's languages on how yes, no questions are, are often marked. So for example, in English, we've already said this, there's a different word order. Um, you know, we will move something to the front. So, you know, I am speaking, am I speaking? Um, the am is the verb, it moves to the front of the class. So that's English. We also have in some languages question particles. So Hebrew is a good example of this, the ha, right? Um, just marks a yes, no question. Um, and, and Greek as well. Right, you you do have some question particles in Greek, but the normal way to do a yes/no question in Greek is just to have it unmarked. So, in, in particularly in New Testament Greek, um, you have you know a, a few question particles that we will talk about, um, but they're optional, and most of the time, for most yes/no questions, uh, you, they are unmarked. So, I'll, I'll give an example of this: Sun panta auto nai. So do you understand all these things? And they said to him, yes. 
So this is from Matthew 13, 51. It's very clear. It's a yes, no question. Um, they respond, nigh, yes, right? Um, and sin ekate tautapanta is just a very normal order, dropped subject, um, verb, object. And so here we have, you know, there, there's no, nothing special about this clause that, you know, would suggest it's, um, we have any movement and there's nothing special about the, um, you know, there the, are the no question particles. And she actually says that VSO, SVO, and SOV are all significantly attested uh, for yes, no questions. So it's probably marked through intonation. So, you know, we might say that, okay, in this example, in Matthew 13 that I just read, the verb has moved, right? Um, but the fact that you have VSO, SVO, and SOV all significantly attested suggests that that's probably not the case. So let's talk about question particles in Greek. The the There's two main categories, ones that expect an answer and one one that does not. So we have u, uk, and uchi, and me, and meti with, with expected answers. Um, and importantly, these have different syntax than the negative words. And we will show this in a second. And then we have ara, um, which is a neutral question word. So this ara does have the circumflex over the initial alpha. There is another ara that does not have the circumflex. It has an acute. And that is a different word. Um, and it does something different. And we will talk more about that in a few minutes. But just, you know, to dispel any um, confusion, we're talking about the question particle right now. So here is her example of a yes-no question with SVO order from Romans 3.3. Me he apistia auton ten pistin tu theu katargese. Their disbelief won't nullify the faith of God, will it? So here we have me. Um, the the expected answer with me is no. So their disbelief won't nullify the faith of God, will it? No, um, it won't. Me genoito is Paul's response. So here we have me preceding the subject and the verb. And that tells us that this me is in a different slot than the normal negation, right? Because the normal negation goes with the verb. So the fact that we have this different order with this negative word, me coming before everything in the clause and not going with the verb suggests that it's doing something, it's in a different slot in the syntax and therefore doing something different. So the question is, right, where are these particles? Um, particularly in relation to topic, for example, um, or focus. So she gives Matthew thirteen fifty six as an example where the topic precedes the question word. It's this, Kai hai adelphai autu uhi pasai pros mas esin and his sisters. Aren't they all with us? So here we have the kai hai delphi autu. Um, this, she says, is a topic, you know, shifting topic, and, and it is preceded by, or it precedes, sorry, the question word uhi. Uhi pasai prose mas esin. So here we have evidence that the question word um, comes after the topic. So the question then is, okay, well, where is it in in relation to focus and familiar topic, for example? Um, so 
then she, in in kind of response to this, she talks about um, the word ara. So this word ara is, is not the same ara with the question word. It is what what she calls an inferential particle. And she says that it's in a certain place in the syntax. So it is particularly um, between topic and focus, the higher topic, the shifting contrastive topic, and focus. Um, she calls it, an, you know, an evidential phrase. Um, so, so that would allow her to say, like, if that's the correct position, then the question particle in relation to that, you know, once we determine the the question particle's location in relation to that, we'll be able to see whether it is before or after focus. Because the 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 idea is that ara is um, between topic and focus. So, if the question word does co-occur with that, and it does. Um, then we can see if if it follows ara, then it um, would potentially probably follow focus, right? Or be in that focus slot. If it precedes it, right? Then we know um, the question word precedes focus. So uk ara is the normal order. It's actually the order that's found every single time. So you're always going to have the question particle come before ara, which means that these yes-no question particles are coming in between topic and focus. So, uk ara siu eho aegyptios, aren't you rather the Egyptian? So, this is Acts 21.38, and this tells us the position of the yes-no particles. So, now as our last section, let's talk a little bit about WH words and their location. So, we mentioned this in the beginning, what are WH words? They are those that correspond to WH um, question words in English. Who, what, why, when. Um, so they're just called that in linguistic literature. And um, they they usually replace some element in a positive sentence. So, you know, the in, in Greek, this is typically tis and all its variations. And, um, we, you know, we also have... A, Obviously, pote, how, pos, etc., etc. Um, but the the main one we'll focus on is tis. And what's special about this word is that it can replace a subject, object, or an adjunct. Um, and so, Kirk starts out with presenting us with some data, and this data is is very interesting. Um, it shows that the um, order of constituents in WH words, especially with objects, is not random. So we have, um, for those of you that are are listening to this and not looking at uh, the screen with me, we have WH VS order. Um, so this would have to be where um, the, the WH word is setting in for an object, right? Because you wouldn't be able to have VS if the WH word were sending in for a subject um, because the WH word would be the subject. But but when you have um, it as an object, you have WH VS order 19 times and you have WH SV order only two times. And one of them, there is a text critical issue where it's debatable. So um, very, very strong tendency to have WH VS. Um, and what's interesting about this is why, right? That's that's the big the big question. 
um, and we will get into this a little bit, but if you contrast this with adjuncts, you you have a very split order with WH words in as adjuncts. So WH VS with how questions, this would be pulse and then VS. You have 15 occurrences and then pulse and SV, you have eight. So it's still more VS, but when you move to DAT, Y, you have three with WHVS and 15 with WHSV. So it's very, very even in this in this regard with, with adjuncts. But but we do see this sharp contrast between um, WH words as objects uh, between the VS order and SV order. So let's talk about why this is the case. So we know that in some languages, what happens with WH um, object questions is that the verb actually moves to a different um, location, specifically um, something related to the complementizer phrase. So we have in English, who drank the tea, um, where you have, you know, who replacing the subject, and then you have the verb, and then the tea. With the object, what's different is that you have to have do. It's called do support. So what did the girl drink? You can't say what the girl drank, right? You would never say that. With the subject question, you can add did. Who did drink the tea? It's totally fine. Um, but with the object question, for whatever reason in English, you have the syntactic difference. You're required to put did. What did the girl drink, right? That's... Um, the only way to say that. And and so the, the question is, is the WH word in the specifier of C and the verb in C? So so the, the question is, does the verb move with the object? Right? So the object is, is the WH word. And so the idea is that if you have this inverted order, what if the verb, um, you know, consistently VS, and we know that um, SV is a possible basic order in Greek, um, and we see that in other kinds of questions. What if the verb just in these WH object questions moves with the object to the front of the clause? And so what this would mean is, you know, the analysis would be that the WH word is in the specifier of C and the verb in C. So we have T to C movement of the verb. And this is very normal. It's a very normal thing for this to happen with these kinds of questions. But the implication is that there will be no intervening element between these two, um, between the verb and the WH object. So this would account for the strong tendency of WH VS order in questions. And again, we know that WH objects often behaves differently syntactically than other kinds of WH words. Um, so the problem with this is her, you know, Two counterexamples. So she actually presented this as, you know, alternative analysis, and she has some work which I actually haven't looked at, but she has some work where she has argued for this in New Testament Greek that with wh um, object question words, the verb moves to c, and here um, she argues against herself, which you always like to see scholars do, um, because you know you can tell that. They're uh, keeping themselves honest and not just everyone else. So, so she says basically that you, because of examples where you have 
the subject intervening between the WH object and the verb, um, you can't have the verb move. At least that that isn't obligatory. Then what she has to say is that the you know this strong tendency is coincidental. So the the you know we saw that there are 19 WHVS and only two WHSV, only one really ambiguous one in her corpus, which is only four books, but still, it's a very strong tendency. So he, here are the examples that she gives um, that, you know, uh, se- seems to have kept her up at night. She said, this is Galatians 4.30, a la ti lege he grafe. But what does the scripture say? Um, so this, you know, is behaving like it should. Ti lege he grafe. Um, we have WH object followed by the verb, followed by the subject. Okay, so that's Galatians 4.30. But then we have an example like Galatians 4, or sorry, Romans 4.3. Ti gar he grafe lege. So this is a problem, right? It's a problem because this is not the normal order, right? We, we almost always have the T, um, which is standing in for the object, followed by the verb, followed by the subject. Um, we have a very good minimal pair, the exact same phrase, ti, hegrafe, lege. The only difference is Allah and gar, which shouldn't affect the order. Um, so, But in Romans 4.3, we have the subject, hegrafe, intervening between the verb and the question word, the WH object question word. So this shows that the verb and the WH object question word cannot be in um, you know a relationship where the the head is the verb and the specifier is the WH word because if that were the case nothing could intervene and so the fact that we have this example shows that at the very least this movement is not necessary uh, and she just says it's you know coincidental that we have all these um, examples or all, all of this, you know, data where we have VS. So I, I mean, this is something that it's, it's a very interesting question. And it's something where I would say, okay, well, let's look again at these examples of SV very carefully and see, is there a reason, you know, that maybe in these cases, the, the verb hasn't moved with the, the WH word, because the fact that you have such a strong tendency in the data certainly suggests that something is going on here besides, you know, just coincidence. Um, but but you do have to deal with these kinds of examples, right? Um, you, you this, this is totally unexpected to have SV order after an object question word if the object word and the verb move to the front of the clause together, which we know happens in, in many languages. So, um, this is a really interesting question and honestly one that someone out there should investigate more deeply. So where are these WH words? So we've already talked about where the uh, yes, no question words are, and we're going to get to that in a little bit more detail in a second. But where are these WH words in relation to you know topic and focus? So there is an example in Matthew 16, 15, where she gives the topic as preceding the WH word. And in this case, the topic is a contrastive or shifting topic. So it says, Himes de tina me legete enai. So, and you, 
who do you say that I am? So in this case, the humace de is the shifting topic. Um, and again, co-occurs with de, so we like to see that. Tina me legatai einai. This is the question word, Tina. Right? So the WH word is following the topic here, which suggests that the topic uh, precedes the WH word. So now, where is it in relation to focus? Can we find an example where you have a focus construction um, and these WH words? Uh, her example is Matthew 15, 3. Diati kai humes parabainete ten entolen tu theu. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? So here, the kai humes is um, the additive focus that we discussed before. Kai is not a conjunction here, um, it's a focus particle, and it is following the diati, um, the wh word, which means that the wh word is occupying some slot between topic and focus. And finally, let's talk just a little bit about um, complementizers. So the reason being is that um, these WH words, like like we said previously, um, seem to be occupying a similar slot to complementizers. So we actually said this when I was introducing, um, you know, consistent order in, in English. So we said, you know, you would never say, he said that what, you know, did she run or what did Liana run, right? Or he questioned that what Liana ran. Um, or you would never have the WH word and the complementizer co-occurring. And the reason is, is because they occupy the same slot, right? Um, so and it, it is this complementizer phrase. So you have an example here in Luke 24, 7, where you have a complementizer um, showing the same order as uh, you know, with the topic that we just saw with the WH word. So I'll, I'll give, I'll just read the example. Legon ton trion tu anthropu, hoti de paradothenai is geras anthropon hamartolon. Saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinning men. That's her translation. Um, so ton trion tu anthropu is the topic, and that comes before the complementizer hoti. And the topic is actually serving as the subject of de paradothenai. And, and so, so you know, must be delivered. It's the son of man that must be delivered. So this is an accusative subject. And it the fact that it comes before the complementizer, first of all, I, when I saw this example, I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected this, you know, to see this subject of the embedded infinitive verb or the really of day, uh, come before the complementizer, but it does. So this is not the normal order. And the idea here is that you you have this same sort of thing happen with WH words. And so it is suggestive, and this is what she suggests, that the complementizer hoti and the WH word is, is they're occupying the same slot, right? Um, and in fact, you know, morphologically, the T, you, you actually see that in, in the complementizer hoti. Um, you see, you know, the the morphological similarity. So the idea then, where are these question words, um, is that they are occupying the complementizer um, position. This is also sometimes called force um, for like illocutionary force, uh, but she calls it um, CP. She actually calls it force P at times as well, but she ends up with CP. Um, so the idea is that 
in our, um, you know, what we've talked about so far, the, the left periphery, right? The, all the things that come before the normal subject and verb in a normal sentence are topic first. Um, so we have that as, as the shifting topic or contrastive topic. Those are our two interpretations. Then we have the CP. This is where you have complementizers like hoti, sometimes hina. You also have WH phrases here. It's particularly in the specifier uh, of the commentizer phrase. Then you have uh, question particles also as the head of commentizer phrases. So all of those things uh, go in this slot, right? And then you have focus, a focus phrase. So this follows both topic and WH phrases and commentizers. And then you have a familiar topic phrase. And this follows the focus phrase and comes right before the uh, tense phrase and the verb phrase. So that's a big picture overview of, of the the kinds of places that we see these different elements with different interpretations land in the syntax. So if it's a familiar topic, right, it could be in the first position, but it also could be in the second position if there's also a focus. If there's a WH word, um, it could be in the first position. It also could be in the second position if there's a shifting topic or contrastive topic like, like we just saw. So this will, will really um, help you to interpret the Bible, right? Um, because when you see that there are elements displaced, you can then say, okay, um, are there any other elements displaced? And how are those related to each other? How are those related to the context? That's, that's the basic idea. So what, what conclusions can we draw from this? First, just to summarize from a high level, there are many different kinds of topics in New Testament Greek, and there are two different locations for these topics. So there's a shifting or contrastive topic. Um, there's also a familiar topic location. And, you know, if you, the aboutness topic we said is just before everything else, um, part of its own, it's doing its own thing with petty or whatever. Um, so so to, to say, you know, oh, this is a topic is not enough, right? To say, oh, this subject is a topic here. Um, the, the question is what kind of topic and and why, right? Um, second, there are many different kinds of foci in New Testament Greek, elements in focus, but there's only one syntactic slot where it is found. So if something, if someone says, well, this is in a focus position, uh, the question is, what kind of focus construction is it? You know, can you show that it really is focus and not, you know, familiar topic or something, or contrastive topic, for example. Then we moved on to questions, yes, no questions. And these are particles that occur between topic and focus. So we said that you have shifting topic or contrastive topic uh, first, then we have focus, then we have familiar topic. Uh, these yes, no question particles occur between topic and focus. So they are between the shifting contrastive topic and focus in what we call the complementizer phrase. There's no special order for yes, no questions. We see SVO, VSO, SOV, um, she says are all quite frequent. So the assumption then is that there's some sort of intonation difference between questions and regular declarative statements, but we don't have access to that intonation difference. And finally, um, WH words. They occur between topic and focus. Again, in the same order with these yes, no questions, probably in the specifier of the complementizer phrase rather than as the head, 
as a WH or as a yes, no question particle would. And these WH objects have a strong tendency to be VS, but every other kind of question shows considerable variation. So this is really a question for, for further research. The question is, why do these WH objects show this strong tendency for VS? Um, is it coincidence or is there something else going on? Is there you know possible movement um, of the, the verb to um, C with the WH word? Or, you know, is, is there, um, you know, some other reason why we have this very strong tendency in the data to almost always have VS when we have a WH object? So there are a lot of questions left, right? Um, and Kirk actually has another chapter on relative clauses, which we, we won't get into. But there are a lot of questions left about New Testament syntax, but hopefully this has given you an idea of the kinds of things you would need to to look at, right, to have a comprehensive picture of New Testament syntax. What are the basic orders, if there's two, right? We have said there there is two, um, subject, verb, and um, verb, subject, object always goes last. And then when we get outside of those orders, why is there movement? So we said that there can be lots of different reasons for movement. Um, these pragmatic reasons we've said, topic and focus, different kinds of topics, different kinds of focus, um, different kinds of question words that can move things around in the sentence. So hopefully you've, you've seen from this that it's not random. The word order in the Greek New Testament is not random. There is an order to all of it. There are some orders that are not possible. Kirk uses ara, for example, as, as a diagnostic for the placement of some elements in the clause, and you never find a yes-no question word, for example, after ara. So that suggests that there is a slot for that. Just like in English, there's a, there is a certain syntactic construction for yes-no questions. And so we have the same thing in Greek. It's just that it's a little bit more complex because you often have more movement going on, and you often have things moving for reasons that you don't see in English. Contrastive topic, shifting topic, familiar topic, etc., etc. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an order. And we actually do see in other languages movement for those same reasons. So hopefully this gives you a good grasp on the kinds of questions you should be asking when, when approaching the text. And hopefully it gives you some tools in order to understand the text better, particularly when the word order seems <laughs> crazy um, and very difficult, you can look back and see, okay, what are the order of, the, of these constituents? What are these syntactic slots where, you know, these certain interpretations might be found? And how is that reflected in the text that we're looking at? So that's all that we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. 